Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, hosted by Josh Abatoy and Tymon Klein. Our mission is to promote a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day, rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Welcome back to the American Reformer podcast. Uh, this is Time and Klein, editor in chief. I'm flying solo today. Josh Abatoy um, is in the wind, uh, doing great things for the cause of liberty. I'm sure that um, I have with me today a special guest, so you don't have to listen to me just monologue. Um, Mark David Hall, who is among other books, we'll we'll get into, is the author of Did America Have a Christian Founding. Um, and Dr. Hall, you're still you're still at George Fox, right? That's where you're a professor now. I actually just started at Regent University. Um, oh, Regent wow. starting a new PhD program in politics, and they brought me in to help launch it. So I would love yeah. to chat with any of your listeners if they're interested in graduate study at a good Christian university. I'd be very happy to chat with them. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, so you've you've totally moved. You're moving coasts. That's right. Yes, yeah. sir. Well, and I was when I was recalled that you're at George Fox. I was I was struck that I, I wasn't aware the Quakers made it out that far, but I guess they did to, to set up University in Oregon. They did, and believe it or not, they're still Orthodox out here. So George Fox yeah. University remains a, a faithful Christian university, as opposed to most of the others, Swarthmore and whatnot, that have long since gone off the rails. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, maybe it's the it's the the vigor that the spirit of George Fox gives them. Yes. He was, he was no slouch in his own day. <laughs> but, no, he was not. That's absolutely right. Um, anyway, it's great to have you on today to talk about this particular book. And we'll, we'll bring up some other more recent books that uh, we were talking about before the show. Um, but I think this one, it's, uh, you know, I, it seems to be a good sign to me that it came out in 2019, but it's still making the rounds. I keep seeing people talk about it still uh, asking you to talk about it. Uh, which seems to be a sign of success, uh, considering how many books just fall by the wayside, you know, a few months after the route. Um, but I think it's because it it asks, I mean, the question that's in the title, which uh, Americans, for better or worse, seem to me to be a, you know, particularly interested in the nature and character of their founding. Maybe it's because we're so young and uh, we, we were so intentional in the way we did it. Um, but there's still, even at this, you know, late stage, a lot of debates uh, in the public sphere will hinge on, you know, the extent to which you can appeal to the founder's intent. This is true in our jurisprudence, as you know. Um, so maybe that's why it keeps going. But why, from your perspective, why has this book continued to get attention um, given contemporary debates and so on? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. So I've done probably a dozen academic books. This is my first book aimed at the general reading public. And I wanted to get my arguments, which I made in academic books, out to the broader public, because as you point out, every politician wants to be on the founder's side. So if you can appeal to the founders and say, this is the sort of constitutional regime or policy or law they supported, um, that works in your favor. And since 1947, the U.S. Supreme Court has insisted that we must uh, interpret the First Amendment religion clauses in light of the founders' views. And so getting those views right has important implications for law and public policy. And so basically, I was hoping to straighten out a lot of erroneous history, but also make a contribution to our legal and political um, discourse. Yeah, excellent. Totally. Uh, I think that's, you know, I actually, um, even though sometimes those sort of appeals you were talking about, as you know, both by the court itself can be very superficial and partisan, um, and then, of course, you know, debates on the House floor or whatever, and, and then in the pages of opinion pieces can be very flippant and kind of, uh, you know, one dimensional. But I consider it an overall good that Americans still have an instinct to do this. Some kind of filial piety still runs through us. And, uh, you know, it's it's a white pill for the day. And in, in, in my opinion, when people appeal to the founders, even if they do it badly. Um, but a lot of what you spend uh, your time on in this book is attacking or rather correcting some of those bad uh, one-dimensional appeals. Um, and one of those comes early in the book, and, and I assume a lot of people have probably heard this, which is 
Um, you'll find this in many mainstream histories, which is that the founders are basically categorized as deists, right? Um, and you you both talk about the deism myth and how if uh, even the sort of more heterodox founders were deists, they weren't very good deists. So talk to us a little bit, a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you. So as you know, each chapter begins with about 18 quotations from prominent Academic, so not you know fly by night websites, but prominent folks at the University of Chicago or Purdue or Messiah College um, that make claims. In this case, most or many of America's founders were deists, and so I kind of set up that myth by which I mean a false story. Then I would like to think I demolish it. So deism, as you know, is an Enlightenment idea, an Enlightenment approach to religion that basically says we're going to accept those parts of Christianity that make sense to us rationally. And so they throw out doctrines like the incarnation, the atonement, um, a, a creator God who does miracles. And so for the DS, God is not active in human affairs. He does not inter intervene in the affairs of men and nation, nations. You know, maybe a God still exists. Maybe a creator God created everything. Maybe he wants us to do good. But otherwise, almost everything else that is distinctive about Christianity is thrown out the window. And so time and time again, academics and others have asserted most or many of America's founders were deists. Every time this argument is made, the author uses maybe five, six, seven founders to illustrate this point. The four who became president, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, and Madison, usually at Ben Franklin, sometimes in Alexander Hamilton. They look real carefully at these folks and they say, look, here it is. They're deists and therefore most or many of America's founders were deists. Now, even if the ones I just mentioned actually were deists, that's obviously bad social science. You're, you're generalizing from a very small sample to a very large population. And so that should raise red flags right there. But then if you look carefully, you see someone like a, um, a Jefferson, a Franklin, and an Adams are definitely not Orthodox Christians. So I can see that up front. We should recognize that fact. They're heterodox. And yet each of them talks about God intervening in human affairs more than once. So this is not uncommon. And so therefore, by the usual definition of deism, um, they wouldn't be deist. But then we turn to a Washington, a Madison, a Hamilton, and there actually isn't that much evidence that they were not Orthodox Christians, and there's no evidence that they were deists. And so even in our very small sample, I, I, I would like to think I demolish this myth that most or many of America's founders were deists. But if we turn from the small sample, and we should recognize that basically 85% of those folks I just mentioned were Anglicans or, or members of the Church of England by the end of their lives. If we turn from that small sample and look at the broader constellation of founders, where 98% of Americans of European descent are Protestant, 2% Roman Catholic, you have about 1,500 Jews in America at the time. Of the Protestants, about 75%, 50 to 75% are Calvinists. And when we look at people like a Roger Sherman and Oliver Ellsworth and on and on, I list a number of people, there's no reason to doubt um, not only that they're Orthodox, but that they're good, serious Calvinists. And so the idea that most or many of America's founders were deists is just completely unsupportable as a matter of history. Yeah, and I, I, I would say, uh, from a demolish the argument, <laughs> the, I think it's um, it's great treat. And one thing that you do, you know, in in your book and in many of your talks too is you know, to sort of broaden the horizons or the scope of people's um, assessment of, you know, the quote unquote founding and the quote unquote founders. So apart, you know, getting further than the household names that stick with us, which, you know, is not, um, it, it's not by accident. There were certain 19th, late 19th and 20th century American histories that emphasize just a few of them, right? And they're the ones that in some way, fairly or unfairly, kind of uh, promoted or furthered ulterior motives from those historians, I would say. So bringing in Oliver Ellsworth, Roger Sherman, you know, and then there's there's other Theoph Theophilus Parsons, these types of people that are not as familiar, but in their own day were considered very influential, highly respected, uh, very involved in, we would say, the, the, you know, material and logistical aspects of the founding of the country, so on and so forth, and obviously influenced uh, the the intellectual streams going into those uh, the founding the documents the forms of government all this sort of thing so I, that's I mean something I appreciate 
immensely about your work is is broadening sort of horizons. But another way you do this too is early in the introductions of stepping back from chapter one is you, you know, you talk a bit about the colonial setting that obviously informs uh, that what we could say, I guess, is the late colonial setting. So talk to us a little bit about methodologically why it's important to, you know, step back before 1780, 1776 and 87. Yeah, so I do this a little bit in Did America Have a Christian Founding? I do it even more in my most recent book to have been published, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. I have an entire chapter on the Puritans, the American Puritans. And basically, it's a, it's a, a question, were the Puritans theocrats or intolerant theocrats or something like that. And I answer that with a resounding no. So you have these Calvinists that came over to America to create, in the words of Jonathan Winthrop, this shining city on a hill. They completely revised their laws and, and social policies and political institutions um, to reflect what they believed the Bible was teaching them. And in doing so, they created some of the most Republican institutions the world had ever seen. They um, were, were absolutely committed to the rule of law. The first printed code of laws in the world was published in New, in New England. Um, they revised the laws in ways that all of us would say are progressive in the best sense of the word. You could be put to death in England for literally hundreds of crimes. And the Puritans, American Puritans, reduced that to like 17. And um, some of those are for things like murder and so forth. And so many crimes in England, you could be put to death for uh, for stealing just a few shillings. Uh, the Puritans looking to the Bible said, well, it looks to us like restitution is a proper penalty. So you have to give back the shillings you, you stole and additional shillings. For our purposes, I think one of the most important things, and we could have this discussion for the other colonies, but let's just limit it to New England for now, is in New England, you had 150 years of citizens electing their representatives, government by the consent of the governor. And these folks had elections every six months. And in places like Connecticut, they elected the lower house, the upper house, and the... Um, in the governor. And so they're taxed, but by their tax, they're taxed by their elected representatives. They have the rule of law and they really got used to governing themselves. And this is why when we head towards the war for American independence in 1764, 1765, where parliament really for the first time started stepping in and saying, well, we're going to tax you all without your, without you being represented here. This is why Americans reacted um, so, so powerfully to this unconstitutional Act of Parliament. So, yeah, I think it's important to see this long history. Um, again, it's important to recognize that this is a very Protestant people, a very Calvinist people. And Calvinists, as you know, had developed a, a, a theory, an understanding that the Bible permits and even requires um, elected officials and inferior magistrates or the people themselves to actively resist tyrannical government. And again, that's one reason, especially in New England, that these um, New Englanders push back against unconstitutional acts of parliament in a way that many British colonies did not. Yeah, I think I think one of the first things I ever read from you was um, you co-authored a series of pieces in a journal that Westminster puts out that I wrote on uh, Puritan election sermons before, for, and I think it was a can't remember the year, but it's Unio Cum Cristo, right? Is the, and you did yeah. this uh, this great couple pieces. I think it was a couple um, talking about you know the roots and the theological roots um, of of resistance. I remember there was a, a sort of you know early comic you described where people were throwing copies of Calvin's Institutes at the at the people, the tax masters and things. You know, just a totally different world than most people uh, assume in a sort of caricatured view of the founding but this this aspect of you know even if you have ben franklin who we would all agree is is heterodox he was self-professedly heterodox um certainly jefferson but sticking with new england you know having guys uh john hancock you know that are all and then john adams obviously uh, more heterodox than his cousin but even if they're heterodox they were all conditioned by a decidedly protestant environment you know, which goes back to the colonial period. I mean, there's, we know that, uh, you know, Ben Franklin knew Cotton Mather as a boy, you know, so the timeline is, is much shorter uh, than we, than we often realize. And I think that that, um, you know, it tells us a little bit about the institutions and the, and the founding itself that goes beyond the, the private um, sort of ascent, religious ascent of certain founders and into, you know, what type of country 
uh, did we have and what was it like on the ground? Um, and I can't remember do you if you address in this book or any of your other writings, you know, that these sort of myths that like church attendance was really low, you know, and it was a, a sort of valley of religiosity at, at the founding. And those have all been those myths have just been thoroughly debunked that uh, it was a, it was a time where people were very committed still to their uh, their churches. And, and that was the center of religious or, and social life you know, in the colonies. So then the question is, well, what kind of country would those people produce, you know, if they're, if they're doing all this? And I think the, the answer should be obvious, but th- as your book shows, there's a lot of, there's a lot of weeds to cut through to get to that. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So um, you, you pointed to the two articles I co-authored with Sarah Morgan Smith. One of the things that interested us is first of all, people say just ridiculous things about Calvin, such as that he do, he never permits um, resistance to a, a tyrannical authority. Um, a bit more re- reasonable of a claim is that in the institutes, he only permits inferior magistrates to resist a superior magistrate who becomes a, a, a tyrant. Um, one of the things Sarah Morgan Smith and I were interested in how this became broadened in the Reformed tradition. First of all, after the last edition of the Institutes, there are three places where Calvin himself seems to suggest that the people could legitimately resist a tyrannical, um, a, a superior magistrate who becomes a tyrant. But if you trace the Reformed tradition, you look at the author of Vindicate Contras Tyrannos, Goodman, Ponet, Buchanan, you see that very rapidly within the Reformed tradition, you get this very robust idea. I, I think always there's a little bit of nervousness about the people. So ideally, the inferior magistrates will resist um, a superior magistrate who becomes a tyrant. But if they don't do their job, then the people themselves may legitimately do this. This is just baked into um, reformed political theology. And so therefore, I think it's very important to understand that 50 to 75% of Americans are reasonably classified as Calvinist. And you're exactly right about church attendance. A, a, a decent book by um, Finke and Stark called The Churching of America um, reflects, it's really inaccurate, it goes, it's older than them, uh, but this view that maybe only 10% of Americans were, quote, Churched. Um, that has been thoroughly debunked uh, by Jim Hudson of the Library of Congress and others. A far more, a, a far better um, estimate, which was published in the William and Mary Quarterly, essentially said probably fifty-eight to eighty percent. I think the figures are of America's Americans were churched, um, and what they mean by that, churched, is kind of an odd phrase. That means basically that they went to church on a regular basis. And it's important to use that measure versus joining a church where church members, because as you know, in many reformed churches, it's really, really hard and very stressful to join a church. And so you had plenty of very dedicated um, Calvinists who just never joined their church. Uh, But yeah, uh, religiosity was alive and well in the American founding. There really can be no doubt of that, although you still have time and time again, people who want to deny that America had a Christian founding will say, well, they weren't even uh, Christians or they weren't even going to church. Just utterly false. Right. Uh, I was was thinking of Hudson's uh, essay on that when I was asking you the question, which you just, you know, it's a brutal takedown, but it shows how, um, you know, Easily, some of these myths got into the bloodstream that were almost completely groundless. You know, there was no proof behind uh, whatever the article in the 30s that first as, uh, asserted this kind of idea that church attendance was below 10 percent had actually no citations. You know, it was just a pure just a pure assertion. Um, and it's amazing that it lasted that long because I think Hudson was sort of tackling that stuff in the late 90s and early 2000s. It's quite a while. Um, and it makes you wonder what else, you know, is kind of going under under cover of darkness into you know the the discourse but uh, again your your book is chipping away at a, at a lot of that um another another myth that you tackle that may still be predominant popularly i'm not sure but there's certainly books still being written with this assumption is the you know the so-called godless constitution argument so if you know you can follow this sort of reasoning if if it's a thoroughly christian mainly protestant even mainly calvinist brand of, of Protestantism in the country at the time, if most people were going to church, if their justification, at least in part, for resisting uh, certain British acts is you know rooted in Calvinist uh, resistance 
theory, you know, general, I mean, even Aquinas talks about justifications for tyrannicide, right? I mean, so this goes back quite a way thinking about these things. If it's grounded in Christian theology, though, and reasoning um, into into politics, but then all of a sudden they just pop out a a so-called atheist constitution, that would seem bizarre, but uh, people assert this. So you you have to uh, address that claim as well. Yeah, thank you. I think that's exactly right. One of the things I do in the introduction is I kind of consider the question. It's a fun question. When was America founded? Well, if we go back to the settlement of the early colonies, I think there's no question that America had a Christian founding from the Puritans through the mid-Atlantic colonies down to the southern colonies. If we jump forward to the War for American Independence and the Declaration of Independence, um, I, I think you could still make a very strong argument that America had a Christian founding. You look at documents like the Declaration, right, which contain the wonderful phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, you, you can make a very good argument that these folks thought they were acting um, on, on biblical and Christian theological grounds, and that... Um, and certainly their actions were compatible with Christianity. And so some people even recognize that. But then they'll say, but by the time we get to 1787, the Enlightenment had swept America. And so the founders created a secular constitution, a godless constitution. And they drew from Montesquieu and and, and Thomas Hobbes, perhaps. And um, they, they, they just rejected Christianity. And even even have Christians like... Um, like, like um, what's his name from Notre Dame, who makes it, Patrick Deneen, who makes this sort of argument with respect to the Constitution. I think it's just an utterly ridiculous argument. Now, one of the things these people immediately point to is a lack of a reference to the deity in the Constitution until you get to the dateline in the year of our Lord, 1787. Uh, but I wouldn't make much of that. I think that's just a common way of dating things. What I argue in the book, as you know, is that we can say that America had a Christian founding, even if we focus on the creation of our constitutional order, because the founders drew from their their, their deep and um, serious Christian convictions. So, for instance, the founders were convinced to a person that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And even Christians continue to struggle with the old man within. And so Madison writes in Federalist 51, for instance, if men were angels, government wouldn't be necessary. But men aren't angels, so therefore we need government. And yet we need the separation of powers and checks and balances in federalism um, in order to make sure government does not become tyrannical. Um, we could look at the founders' understanding of liberty, and if we go beneath the surface, we'll see clearly the founders understood liberty as a freedom to do things that are morally right. You have no freedom to do something wrong. James Wilson famously put as an epigraph of his law lectures, law without liberty is tyranny. Liberty without law is licentiousness. The founders distinguished between liberty and license. The founders were convinced that humans are created in the Mago Dei, the, the image of God. And this profoundly informed um, their, their experiment in constitutional self-government, the laws they passed at both the federal and the state level. And this is, again, important. I want to emphasize what we need to understand that the founders understood the national government as doing very few things. Um, all of us are, are, are have grown up under a constitutional regime where the national government just does whatever the heck it wants. To the founders, the national government had very few responsibilities, national defense, regulation of interstate commerce, foreign policy. Otherwise, everything governments would do, even the most important things, punishing crimes, um, educating people, providing for um, poor people, to the extent to which governments would do those things, they would be done by the state government or maybe local governments. And many of them, they would say the government really has no business involved in these areas anyway. It should be left up to families or churches or voluntary societies. And so I'll close this out by mentioning religion. Why does the national government not create an established church if, if Christianity was important to the founders. It's because the founders, almost to a person, were convinced if any entity is going to create a church, it would be a state. So we'll have state establishments. But many founders were coming to question whether or not establishments were a good thing. They came to the conclusion, many of them, that establishments hurt rather than help Christianity. And because they wanted to help Christianity, they wanted to promote Christianity, um, they voluntarily got rid of establishments at the state level, such that by 1833, Massachusetts got rid of the last established church. Right. Um, 
So, and there's, there's even, you know, in the, there's, you, you mentioned the sort of sign off in the constitution, you know, referencing the year of our Lord. And there's also like little um, Easter eggs, such as, uh, you know, article one, section seven, the, the Sunday accepted clause, you know, things mm-hmm. that just um, hint at the fact that you're, you're in a, you're in a Christian environment, right? It'd be, it'd be kind of, uh, it, I always say, I, I grew up part of my childhood as a missionary kid and, uh, you know, in Senegal, West Africa, it's, it was got its independence in the sixties and its constitution, you know, by definition would be godless. It's very secular in a French model, uh, but you fly into that, that country and then get on the ground and see how things work. There's no doubt it's a Muslim country, right? That's how, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. So even sure. if you did have a, a very secular constitution, it, it may tell you something um, about some of the, the governmental functions, as you know, the, you know, the constitution is, is largely structural, as you were saying, and, and really geared towards external duties, um, and then leaving the states basically alone, other than what they've ceded for the sake of functionality. And I think it, um, you know, we'll get to the first amendment in a second, but I always recall that it's, it's Jefferson's second inaugural where he like is championing sort of the successes of his first. One of those big things is he's left religion to the, to the states. He's not touched it. Right. He's allowed that those he's he's done exactly what he's supposed to do in accordance with the First Amendment. Um, so that sort of strong federalism that now I don't think people, um, even if it still exists in certain vestiges, they certainly don't feel it. They're they're thinking about government is not a federalist one. It is a you know sort of mono mono uh, national one. Um, and so that that makes it difficult to translate some of this this history to people. Um, but back back then, it certainly would have been your your probably chief identity would be with your state, and you would have thought about the moral governance among other things uh, of of your life being rooted in the you know the state house and whatever they're doing, um, which you know may <laughs> that may be bad news for people in Iowa right now, but in general, it gives you an avenue to to correct these things at a at a more accountable level, and those uh, state you know either. If, Formal or informal establishments continued for a long time, um, and even even uh, going back to the colonial period, you know, you had William Penn kind of uh, calling for this this pan-Protestant, ecumenical Protestant kind of ideal uh, throughout the states. That's what he wanted Pennsylvania to be, you know, populous and Protestant. Uh, this kind of idea that you could have a general Protestantism. So even as you had dif- you know disestablishment, and you wrote a, a great review at Law and Liberty on the the book um i'm blanking on their on their names now but it's very excellent charting the uh, the process of disestablishment which was very winding and, and kind of state particular um, but even after that you still had a sort of pan-protestant identity that governed you know the morals and and uh, customs of of people and that that has to be accounted for yeah no that's a, absolutely right a good illustration of this maybe a sunday closing laws um, you know, they were around well into the 20th century, and they were challenged in 1960 as a violation of both the Free Exercise and Establishment Clause. And the court, by I think it was a vote of six to three, said they're just fine. They're not unconstitutional. And to this day, um, some states still have the vestiges of the Sunday closing laws. Maine, for instance, um, car dealerships can't open on the Christian Sabbath, and I believe hunting is banned as well. And if you were to go back to the 18th century, you would see these laws all over the place, right? So even in states that didn't have, and this is this, is, this should be um, emphasized, even a state like Pennsylvania, which never had a formally established church, you still had all sorts of laws that purportedly promote Christian virtue and punish things that Christians considered to be vice. And really, no one had a problem with these. So, you know, some people would run to follow them and not like them, of course. Uh, but this is the sort of thing you see throughout the Christian world, I mean, and not just America, but England and continental Europe. It, it was just assumed that civil authorities, civil rulers, would uh, protect and promote Christianity broadly, whether or not there would be a formal established church. And we could get into what exactly that entails, but it certainly at least entails taxing everyone to support a favored denomination, whether or not we should have that. That was debated, and many people had come to the conclusion that this is a bad idea, but that certainly doesn't mean that we need some sort of naked public square or that legislators can't take into account the Christian convictions when voting on legislation. Mm. Yeah, I think that Pennsylvania actually, you know, it's kind of funny in the end, the Quakers were like the best at, uh, at you know, fighting for Sabbath laws. I think the last 
Sabbath laws cases came out of Pennsylvania, you know, in the 1920s and 30s and had to do with baseball games, you know, on on Sunday and things like that. So they actually held out the longest, even though they never had a formal establishment, uh, which is always kind of funny, longer than Massachusetts did. Um, but those those are still, I mean, when I was still in uh, New Jersey in the Newark area, it's Bergen County still has blue laws, uh, at least for, for certain retail outlets. And I think it's it's one of the Dakotas was the last to, you know, totally abolish the statewide blue law in like 2014. So, I mean, it's very recent uh, changes and, and shows the kind of endurance of this this Protestant milieu. But um, this gets, I mean, talking about the, the court and, uh, you know, the Establishment Clause gets us to, um, you know, you deal with certain myths surrounding Jefferson, Madison, and the First Amendment, um, and, tr- and try to wade into that territory as well. We've kind of already touched on it, but maybe maybe outline for everybody where you take that and what your conclusions are on on how the First Amendment should be viewed according to uh, the founding. Yeah, thank you. So in Everson versus the Board of Education, a 1947 case, the U.S. Supreme Court applied the Establishment Clause against the state. So prior to 1947, it only restricted the national government. After 1947, it restricts the states, Alabama, Georgia, and so forth. Um, and what the court said, both the majority and the dissent, Justice um, Wiley Rutledge in the dissent, Justice Hugo Black in the majority, they disagreed on the outcome, but they both insisted that we must interpret the Establishment Clause in light of the founders' views. So far, so good. However, both of them went on to to add this um, this gloss. The founders are represented by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Jefferson and Madison desired to build a wall of separation between church and state. Therefore, the Establishment Clause requires a wall of separation between church and state. So I argue a couple of things. First of all, I argue that um, they get Jefferson and Madison wrong, actually. I think Jefferson and Madison wanted a greater degree of separation between church and state than most Americans, but even they did not really act as if there was a wall of separation between church and state. Uh, But this is a, a very important point, and you alluded to it very early. It's always problematic history um, to dive real deeply into one or two people and assume that their views represent the founding generation. And this is no nowhere is this more true than with respect to the First Amendment. Um, to begin with, let's recall that Thomas Jefferson wasn't even involved in drafting or ratifying the First Amendment. He was over in Europe at the time. Madison was, but he's a member of Congress when um, he when the First Amendment is drafted. And so there's a lot of debate about what exactly the First Amendment is going to look like. Madison, it's true, uh, made some proposals. Every one of his proposals um, that was eventually accepted was altered. Some things he wanted were rejected altogether, and some things were were, were in fact added. Um, the wording of each of these proposals was changed. And so by the time we get to the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Um, it simply is is bad history to try to interpret this simply and solely in light of Madison's views. But even if we were to do that, you would have to acknowledge that Madison supported legislative chaplains, military chaplains. Madison as president issued four calls for prayer and fasting or Thanksgiving Day proclamations. Um, so, so Madison himself does not act as if there's a wall of separation between church and state. But if we pull back a little bit and look at the broader founding generation. And so I'm not talking here about yeomen out in the field who have nothing to do with politics. I'm talking, for instance, about other members of the first federal Congress and the members of the of the state legislatures that ratified the First Amendment. And if we act, ask, what did these folks understand the Establishment Clause to be prohibiting? I think the answer simply and solely is they thought the Establishment Clause meant that Congress cannot create an official Church of the United States. And so now, by extension, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina can't have official state churches either. But that leaves a lot of areas where the government is free to get involved in promoting religion. Uh, governors can issue Thanksgiving Day proclamations. States can adopt voucher programs um, where parents can use the vouchers at religious schools. Um, Maryland need not tear down a, um, a mammoth 40-foot cross that's now on public land. Um, there's lots of things that are constitutionally permissible under the Establishment Clause. It's original. It was originally understood to really just restrict, prohibit the creation of an official 
church, almost nothing other than that. Right. And I'm always, uh, you mentioned Everson, you know, which, which of course uses the, uh, you know, incorporates the establishment clause. And there's, you know, as, as you said, the limitation of history to, uh, Jefferson and Madison and, and originalist and conservative justices have been guilty of the same. Um, you can look at, uh, you know, various opinions and uh, even dissents that are trying to make a point, And you'll see that the limitation of citations is to usually letters, often private letters that were never published in their lifetime of one or two, maybe three, you know, founders, which is just an insufficient case. Um, and I'm reminded always, you know, before Everson, there was you know, Reynolds versus United States in, in 1878, which is the bigamy case. And that's the first time that the wall of separation gets introduced by, by Chief Justice Waite. Um, in the end, though, he still says, yeah, of course, the even the federal government can enforce, um, you know, this law against uh, against bigamy, um, even inside of Utah. So the, the conclusion is, is kind of irrelevant to us. But he introduces, you know, this this idea of the wall of separation uh, completely out of the blue, you know, it's not necessary really to the to the holding, and he got it, uh, you know, from a, a historian friend who happened to, happened to be a Jefferson expert. So of course Jefferson's what he got, and it's like it's that simple. And then it's kind of taken on a life of its own, and that's why we have it. Um, but you often find my favorite uh, dissent ever that I cite all the time is from the Van Orden versus Perry case uh, with Justice John Paul Stevens, who of course is. Is against the the majority holding that it's okay to have the Ten Commandments, you know, displayed. Um, but he just points out that the conservatives are are talking about this sort of general uh, Western religion, Judeo-Christian religion, as being you know sort of vague, being the the foundation of America. And, and he, you know, he's one of the ones that actually cites real sources like Jasper Adams, and is like, I don't see that. I just see uh, you know Protestant Christianity at the founding. <laughs> And so he kind of calls them out in that way. And it's it's amazing because he, when some when some of them are capable of real history, they just tend to not do it very well. And so now we're stuck in the popular imagination with just a few uh, people being definitive for an amendment and a constitution that uh, at least half of them weren't even present to to help work on. So um, it is no, no, right. I actually published a law review article. You might not have seen it with the Oregon Law Review in something like 2005, where I literally I went through every Supreme Court religion clause case, read the entire thing. So not an abridged version and a document which um, justices appeal to which founders. Hmm. And what you find is to the progressive justices with respect to the establishment clause, really almost no founders exist other than Jefferson and Madison. Hmm. And even with them, there's only like a handful of documents, Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist, hmm. the memorial and remonstrance, a detached memoranda. And so it's just a handful of, of, of founders, a handful of, of, of documents. Conservatives actually are much better at appealing to a broader range of, um, of sources. And I think they get the argument exactly right. If we turn our eyes from Jefferson to Madison to the broader founding generation, there is no question that they did not embrace this sort of wall of separation. Let me tell just one story that illustrates this, I think, in spades. So literally, literally one day, one day after the House comes up with its final language for what becomes the um, the, the First Amendment, a fellow named Elias Boudinot, who later becomes president of the American Bible Society, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, hey, guys, things are going well. Why don't we ask George Washington, President Washington, to issue a Thanksgiving Day proclamation? Adonis Burke of South Carolina said, we can't do that. That's a European practice. Roger Sherman of Connecticut, that old Puritan, said, no, 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 it's a biblical practice, and so it's just fine. The House agreed with Boudinot and Sherman. The Senate agreed with the, with the with the House. And George Washington, who didn't have to do anything, issued this remarkably theologically rich Thanksgiving Day proclamation of 1789. And so, again, I think when we look beyond uh, Madison and Jefferson, we see the founders just did not see this sort of wall of separation between church and state at all. Um the Establishment Clause literally just prohibits creation of an established church. America, of course, is overwhelmingly Protestant. And so uh, at the state and national level, you could do things in the late 18th, early 19th century that might be imprudent to do today. 
Uh, but to say there's a wall of separation that prohibits states from a, adopting voucher programs or vouchers can be used at religious schools that require um, require religious monuments like the Ten Commandments to be torn down is just utterly nonsense as a matter of history. Hmm. Yeah, this, and one uh, speaking of you know how, getting this history right, there are people who have, including yourself, who have tried to push back over this. Uh, on this issue over the past, I don't know, several, several decades. Um, and one of the, one of the best books just for the list or one of the best aspects of your book, just for the listeners is at the end of every chapter, there's always suggested further reading. And I, I, I mean, at least for me, this is helpful. I've quibbed stuff from that before or gone and tracked it down and it may be helpful to others. And and some of those people, you know, Daniel Dreisbach, Philip Hamburger, uh, we've already mentioned James Hudson, um, you know, the, these guys do get uh, many of the aspects that you're talking about, and they produce good work, to, especially on the church-state question, right, and the uh, the uh, First Amendment question. Philip Munoz's, you know, recent book um, on the ratification debate surrounding the First Amendment is super helpful in this in the same regard. So I'd encourage people to pick that up as well. But one of the you know distinctly Protestant aspects of uh, that you get at in your book too, um, in in uh, chapter four, I think is, uh, you know, the role for the magistrate, whether it's the, you know, lesser or greater magistrate, but certainly at the state level, to in some ways encourage religion, to protect religion, you know, even the modifications to the to the Westminster Confession, um, you know, in, in Philadelphia still maintain this idea that the magistrate has some kind of care and protection for the church generally, for religion generally. So there may be some, compared to continental models or even English models, there's some shifts but that basic idea of you know a nursing father and mother which james hudson has written on this is still present and this is a distinctly protestant idea expressed this way so talk to us a little bit about that chapter as well yeah so i think there are maybe are distinctly protestant um manifestations of what you're talking about but really as david d hall of harvard divinity school and no relation uh, points out if you go back to the 17th century it is just assumed everywhere that the civil magistrate will support true Christianity. This is true in Protestant countries. It's true in Roman Catholic countries, right? And so this sort of support might include um, prohibiting people deemed to be heretics, punishing heretics, um, requiring church attendance, requiring the Sabbath to be observed, and this sort of thing. Um, this remains around, and it's still going strong in the late 18th century in America. I, I think I document that in 1787, I think it's 12, at least 11, maybe 12 of the 13 states had religious tests for office. And this just really is, um, it's par for the course. Of course, it makes sense that we're going to only permit Christians or maybe only permit Protestants to hold civic office. You have laws requiring people to respect the Sabbath everywhere. Um, all sorts of things are that are deemed to be vice are punished. And I use the phrase deemed to be vice because a number of things, I, I think you and me and most of your listeners would say, these things aren't vicious at all. Card playing, stage plays, things like that are banned even in places like Pennsylvania. And we can disagree with them on that. Uh, but then other things like... Um, like, like fornication would be punished as well. And again, this is just par for the course. What happened? Well, I would suggest that what Christians were coming to conclude in the late 18th, early 19th century is really government involvement in these things ultimately is not helpful. Ultimately, it's harmful for Christianity. And so you started seeing the voluntarily voluntary abolition of um of religious establishments. And I think people started thinking, I'll just use a contemporary example. If I have a choice to vote for a pro-life, fiscally conservative Jewish person or a pro-choice, fiscally irresponsible Protestant, I'm going to vote for the, the Jewish candidate any day, right? I'd much rather have a, a, a legislator who's going to be passing the right sort of laws than having one that's a fellow Protestant. And so I think people started, without abandoning the Christian faith, they started recognizing that we're better off and the church is better off getting the um, state 
out of the business of doing um, many of these things that were deemed to be promoting Christianity. And I think today um, we should be very thankful that this is a case. I think we'd be okay in um, red states if there's still a view that the state has a very important role to play in promoting virtue and punishing vice. Um, but I'm afraid right now I'm doing this podcast from Oregon. If the Oregon state legislature started saying, okay, let's get in the business of rewarding virtue and punishing vice, I'm afraid they would do almost exactly the opposite of what they should be doing. And this would be very bad news. So I guess in, in, on these matters, I'm um, really quite glad that the state has pulled back from from doing these sorts of things that would have been taken for granted in the 17th century everywhere. Yeah, I, I always think, you know, it shows us, those those kinds of presumptions that maybe have been rolled back some show us how you know important the character of leaders are and uh, that used to just be uh, acknowledged if you're if you have good leaders uh, you can have all the structural restraints and and these sorts of things but at the end of the day if you have good leaders it goes well for you if you have bad ones it goes poorly for you you know this is just kind of luther's presumption and so on all all the way up through so it we've uh, many christians you know i i fear have uh, dropped that presumption and now assume, well, you know, it doesn't really matter who you put into the into the algorithm; it'll take care of itself. And I think we're we're learning more and more that's simply not the case. Um, but as we as we kind of wrap up here, um, you know, I wanted to talk briefly about you, you had another book come out uh, this year, and you tell me that another one is on the horizon as well. So I didn't want to leave before we plug those and, and briefly talk about the the cases being presented in those as they come out. Yeah, thank you. So originally, I had a very short conclusion for Did America Have a Christian Founding that addressed three issues. One, we've talked about already, uh, more Americans unchurched. The second one was, what was a war for American independence, a biblical and just war? And the third issue was the founders in slavery. And I decided, you know, these are just such important issues that they should be dealt with in full chapters. And so I pulled them from Did America Have a Christian Founding? And I, I fleshed two of them into chapters for Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. So I make an argument against most Christians who have written on this subject, not all, but most. Um, I argue that the war for American independence was, in fact, biblical and was, in fact, just. And I also address the issue of the founders in slavery. And I argue that the founders um, had come to recognize that slavery was an immense evil. And they took a number of steps at a personal level, at a state level, at a national level to put this evil institution on the road to extinction. I also go back and look at the Puritans. I then look at antebellum Americans. And the, probably the overriding theme of the book is throughout American history, Christians motivated by their faith have oftentimes worked to promote freedom and equality for all Americans. I recognize, of course, that sometimes Christians appeal to the the Bible to support the institution of slavery. We have to recognize that reality, but on balance, it's a very positive story. Um, and so it's sort of like, did America have a Christian founding? I'm taking on a lot of myths, the sort of myths uh, laid out there by the 1619 Project and other outfits like that. The book coming out in late spring does a similar thing. What we've seen since 2006, we have seen literally dozens of books and many, many articles um, decrying the rise of Christian nationalism in America. These theocrats who want to take over America for Christ and oppress everyone except for white males. And I look at this literature and I say, this is just ridiculous. Um, they, you know, they're, they're, they're creating a straw man, uh, a, a ridiculous threat um, that, that doesn't exist. And so I take on this literature. I'd like to think I demolish this literature. I then point out and I offer my own definition of Christian nationalism. And of course, we know that there are some um, people out there advocating for Christian nationalism, as Stephen Wolf, most obviously. And so I engage people who actually advocate for something like that. And I make um, good, I, I would like to think good biblical and Christian theological arguments for rejecting the handful of people that actually do um, advocate for Christian nationalism. And when I say rejecting, I don't mean rejecting the person. I mean rejecting the ideas that they're offering up. Well, so some, something of a, a, a trilogy emerging here uh, in the books, strong that's right. yeah. pulled together. That's great. I mean, we, as uh, we, of course, would love to talk to you more about uh, that forthcoming book when it does come out. Because um, that that will be pertinent to many debates we've hosted at American Reformer. You've contributed to some of those as well. 
um, is, is this discussion, which I think has generally been a healthy and, and good discussion, at least at, at certain levels. Um, but thanks so much for your your time today. We're coming up on the on the hour here. Um, everyone should definitely go get Did America Have a Christian Founding? It is a, in my opinion, a, a, it's well written, so it's an easy read in that regard. But it's packed with uh, material that that a lot of people will not have investigated before. And uh, as I said, Mark uh, throws in, you know, puts you on the trail to go find uh, more supporting evidence and. Uh, like a like a good writer in my opinion shows a lot of his his math in these regards so you can you can check it for yourself um i would agree that he has demolished the myths that he tackles in this in this book um and then go get the other two books as well to keep up in the trilogy um mark any any parting thoughts for people um listening to the, to this anything we didn't cover that we should have mentioned um uh, regarding you know the the book we focused on or any of the other two yeah, let me just point your listeners. My wife was very kind. She built me a website, markdavidhall.org, and you can find a list of all my academic publications, some of which uh, my book on Roger Sherman and the creation of the American Republic, I think would be of interest to your listeners. Basically, I argue for the influence of, of Calvinist political yes. theology on a broad swash of, of, of founders. And so you can find links to all those books on that website. And thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Excellent. Yes, I should have mentioned the Sherman book too, because even though that uh, that's another one, I don't I don't know how much it's still making the rounds at a popular level because it's more scholarly. But I keep seeing it crop up, and I read it a few years ago, and I just thought it was a it's it's a great book. It's it's very good because it introduces you, as we were talking about, to a founder that's not necessarily a household name, um, and I think it makes its case thoroughly. Um, it, it's, it was, you know, very enlightening in that way. So, um, enlightening, not in the enlightenment sense, since we're dealing with the Calvinists here, but, um, anyway, I commend that one to you as well for interested readers, as well as uh, all the work that, uh, Mark does. It's always very thorough, um, and, and dispassionate, but not boring. Um, I, I guess I would say, um, passionate in its writing, but fair in its assessment. So, um, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, until next time, everybody go follow us uh, on Twitter, we'll, where some of these clips will be posted at AmReformer. Follow our writings at AmericanReformer.org. Like I said, Dr. Hall has been featured in American Reformer before. We're always glad to see his his writings come our way. And um, look for more episodes on this podcast weekly. Um, until next time, have a good one. You can find American Reformer on the internet at www.americanreformer.org or on x.com, formerly Twitter, at amreformer. Don't forget to like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please consider supporting us today by making a tax-deductible donation through our secure online donation portal at americanreformer.org. That's americanreformer.org.